We're going to jump right into a teaching series that we've been working through for, gosh, it's been close to two months now, I think. We've been studying uh, one of the letters, one of the longer letters, actually, in the New Testament that was written by one of the earliest church leaders, an apostle, um, a follower of Jesus, who helped to start a community of Jesus in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. He wrote a couple of letters, um, probably more, but a couple that we have in our Bibles that are simply entitled 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. We're reading through and studying and considering the application that we can extract from Paul's letter in his first letter to the Corinthians in a way that is helpful and meaningful to us nearly 2,000 years later. 1 Corinthians was arguably written around 55 AD. Paul, uh, if you kind of do the math, connect the dots, was probably in Ephesus at the time, writing back to the church that he had helped to start. And, uh, and it's a very interesting letter. Uh, the church in Corinth is arguably highly dysfunctional. Uh, they're struggling. They're very Greek in their thinking. So they're, they're grappling with the gospel, with the implications of Jesus, his life, his teachings, his miracles, his death, and perhaps most importantly, his resurrection back to life. And even his imminent return. All of these things have great implications, but as, as Greek thinkers, the Corinthians, they're, they're wrestling and they're, they're tripping up a little bit. They keep coming back to this idea that really to be spiritual, to connect with God and, and to live the life that God has given us life for must have something to do with uh, gaining more knowledge, uh, establishing greater spiritual power, and they seem to miss the all-important essence of the gospel, and that is that God loves us so much so that he entered into humanity. He became a part of creation. He sent his son, Jesus, to live a sinless life and yet die a sinner's death on a Roman cross for us, broken, sinful, selfish people. Like myself, like you, like Paul, like the Corinthians. And so this means that God is calling us into relationship with him. To be sure he wants to teach us and to remind us of all the things that Jesus taught his disciples so that we might apply those truths and those principles to our own lives. For sure he wants to give us power so that we're not merely trying to will truth principles and become more moral or better or religious people. He gives us his spirit to transform us from the inside out. But most importantly, our Heavenly Father calls us into a relationship with himself. Out of that place of adoption, we sang about it this morning, everything else begins to flow out. That's the life that Paul is trying to articulate to the Corinthians, and it's, it's the life that we're meant to experience ourselves. So that's just a little re-summarization of everything that Paul's been trying to communicate and get across to the Corinthians. Um, and now we're going to jump right back in. I believe we are in chapter 
end of chapter seven. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it. I'm gonna ask you to to bear with me this morning. Oh, it's extremely hot. (laughs) Um, But I'm slightly drugged up. Got this nasty cold. And I think it's like properly dehydrating me. So I'm gonna attempt to take sips of my scalding hot tea every once in a while. So just bear with me. Okay, let's go. First Corinthians. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Shirley also made the tea for me. She's just been loving me very well this morning. Okay, here we go. Verse 25. This is the end of chapter 7. Now, concerning the betrothed. Okay, now, little, little grammatical cue there. Now, concerning, it's the second time Paul said this. So this, this is our cue to remember that Paul is referencing something that the Corinthians had, had asked him about. So the Corinthians wrote to Paul asking him about several, I think there's like seven specific items. This is the second one that Paul is now addressing. Now concerning the betrothed. I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Hmm. Interesting. Verse 29, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they, did, they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though, as they, had, as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as, they, as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. I love that. I want you to be free from anxieties. Now, let's, let's back up to the beginning real quick. A few, a few side comments before we get too far into it. Um, now, concerning the betrothed, the, the word betrothed there in the Greek is literally virgins, concerning the virgins. Um, this is probably the first example in 1 Corinthians, certainly the best example that we've, we've come across so far, of an instance where the historical context is very, very important. Okay, we're, we're gonna eventually get to some really, I would say, bizarre things in this letter that Paul's written to the Corinthians. All sorts of issues that could really confuse us, confound us, um, complicate things for us if we're not considering the direct context in which Paul is, is dealing with here. So when he says, now concerning the virgins, he's not talking about, okay, now 
for all of the virgins in the room, here's what I have to say to you. That's just super weird. Um, I suppose he could say something to all of the virgins in the room, um, but that's not what he's doing at all, actually. He's talking about young women who are of age, um, they could be married, who that marriage would be determined by their fathers. So the ancient historical context is a Greek patriarchal society. So what, who Paul is actually talking to directly here isn't like virgins or single people or married people. He's talking to fathers who have the responsibility to decide whether or not their virgin daughter is ready to be given away in marriage. That's who he's talking to. It literally has nothing to do with our modern day context, um, at least not directly. Now what's important here is for us to note that and then begin to think principally. Okay, if that's the ancient historic context, which clearly is not our context, okay, we're living in a different culture, we are not a patriarchal culture, and I mean, I don't know how your family rolls, but when my sister decided to get married, my, my dad had very little to do with it. She got married when she was 17. It was, it was quite a ride. And uh, love my sister, love my brother-in-law, and I've got two wonderful uh, niece and a nephew. But my dad really had nothing to do with that. So we need to read the following passage, asking ourselves the question, okay, if this is not our context, what is the principle here? What is Paul saying that does apply to us that we can extract out of this ancient context? Because there's some very, very valuable truth contained in this passage. But unless we're thinking within the context, unless we're considering the historical context, we could come up with some really weird stuff here. Really weird stuff. Like you could conclude like, hey, if you wanna get married, that's fine. You're not a sinner. Your life's just gonna like be really hard. It's gonna be full of trouble. <laughs> she said it. <laughs> I suppose there is some truth to that. <laughs> but that's not his point. That's really actually not his point. Uh, marriage is, is wonderful and it's challenging, but that's just life. Life is challenging. It's full of, of wonderful challenges and ups and downs. So he's saying to the fathers who have the responsibility of deciding whether or not their virgin daughter is ready to or should be given away in marriage. He's saying, now this is my judgment. This is, this is another important side note. Okay, we're reading scripture which has been inspired by the Holy Spirit and thus our supreme authority as followers of Jesus. And yet interestingly, Paul is saying that this is not a commandment from God. Jesus didn't talk about this. Nowhere in the Old Testament scriptures do we find God explicitly talking about this. So I'm gonna give you my opinion. This actually models good discipleship for us. Paul is saying, look, I care about you deeply. I'm concerned about your well-being. I want you to be anxiety-free. Now, I'm not gonna give you a Bible verse. I don't have a command from the Lord, but I care about you, and by the mercy of God, I have wisdom. And so, here's my judgment. 
That's, that's good leadership right there. It's very humble. So he says, I think in verse 26 that in view of the present distress, what is the present distress? We have no idea. We don't actually know. <laughs> um, you can read your Bible commentary on that, which I did. And yeah, there's a, there's a couple, of, couple of ideas floating out there. One, it could just be persecution, first century Christian persecution. It seems like the, the greater consensus is that there was actually a famine. There was a famine going on through the land. In fact, I think it was Acts 11, there was a prophetess who foretold of a famine that would sweep across the Greek world um, under the rule of Claudius, I believe, is what it was. And some Greek historians, scholars, etc., have actually gone back, dug some stuff up, read some old parchments, and have concluded that, in fact, there was a famine going on during the first century around this area of the world. So, which I find fairly convincing, whatever it was, it was something, it was something unique. It was something unique, which adds to the historical context which we need to keep in mind. This is not a principle for all time and all people, all places, all situations. This is a unique situation where Paul, the pastor, is giving his judgment. And he's saying, in view of the present distress, honestly, I think it would be a really bad idea to start planning weddings right now. It would just, it would be more stress than is necessary. Now you have to remember, again, in the context, marriage equals having children in this, in this instance. Okay, there was no, no birth control, none of that going on. If you got married, you were hoping to have children. So I think it's fair to say what Paul was really concerned about. Look, at given the famine that's going on, it would not be a good idea to get married and start having children right now. It, just, it would, just be, it would be, mean major trouble, major anxiety. You'd probably be very wise to hold off if you can. If not, God bless you. You've not sinned. It's your choice. But here's my wisdom. So this is what he's saying. Does that make sense? Okay, let's go to the next slide. Now Paul, quite helpfully, basically zooms out for us. He begins by talking about a very specific situation, a present distress, and then he takes a big step back and he begins to sort of wax poetical and he says something that has much broader implications. He says, this is what I mean. The appointed time has grown very near. In other words, the time in between the ascension of Jesus and his return has in fact shortened. That's how time works. It's shortened, so from now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning, rejoice as they were not rejoicing, rejoicing by dealing, etc. What he's not saying is that you should live your life as if you have no wife and just go crazy. What he's not saying that if you're mourning about something, you should be in denial about it and pretend as if there was nothing to actually mourn about. And conversely, he's saying if you have something to be rejoicing about, don't pretend as if none of it mattered anymore. 
in a very poetic way that actually parallels some of the, the poetry that we often see, the hyperbole that Paul employs elsewhere in his letters to some of the various churches. He's making this point. He's saying, live as if your lot in this life, as if your life in this world was not the end of the story. Live as if you were simply aliens passing through. Remember, remember, this is not home. This is not home. Paul is calling the Corinthians to have an eternal mindset. This is what he's doing. Now this is a principle that I think we can all grab a hold of. And why does he say this? Because he wants us to be free from anxiety. Who here, from time to time, experiences anxiety? It's like one of those stupid preacher questions, right? (laughs) Gotcha. Everyone deals with anxiety. Any, Any psychologists in the room? Okay. Don't judge me too hard, but let me say a few few things about anxiety. It is said that anxiety is the quintessential mind-body phenomenon. Uh, Its symptoms implicate an interaction of DNA, hormones, neurons, anticipatory fantasies, memories and thoughts, as well as the constraints and opportunities that our culture or society allots to us. Anxiety, it's something we all feel and it's super complicated, right? So there's no one obvious reason or cause for it. It could be something to do with your chemical makeup. It could be something to do with a present reality. It could be something to do from, with, from your past. Most psychologists would say that extreme anxiety is typically the product of past traumatic events events involving shame and or some form of emotional abandonment. Whether rooted in some kind of abuse or trauma or rejection or major loss in our past, we can all find ourselves, given the right triggers, in a state of anxiety where we embrace a perceived reality in which we assume that we're being or will be rejected or judged or abandoned, a reality that stems from a deep-rooted belief that in essence you're inadequate, you're inferior, and you're altogether unlovable. And therefore, we worry. We worry about what we say, about how well we might perform, about how we're perceived by others. It can make us overly sensitive to real or imagined criticisms from ourselves or others. Anxiety will often manifest in all sorts of symptoms of codependency, such as controlling behavior, people-pleasing, perfectionism, fear of abandonment, or obsessions about other people and their problems. Everyone has different anxiety base levels. Some of us are just wired a bit more tightly 
Some of us, I don't know, maybe smoked a little too much pot back in the day. (laughs) But we all have individual anxiety triggers. Question, what triggers your anxiety? Do you know it? Do you know your triggers? It's good to know. It's good to think about. I reckon they change depending upon where you're at in life. Thought of not being able to perform or live up to some standard. The thought of ending up alone. The thought of losing control or perhaps the thought of being rejected. I think for me, one of my greatest anxiety triggers is, um, is the fear of failure. It's the anticipation of failure that freaks me out. I can remember, um, this wasn't necessarily a past traumatic event, but it was in the past. Uh, just before we left the UK, I remember um, we, were, we were leading this, this beautiful, small, dwindling little church, and uh, we, we made the, decision, the very, very hard decision that we were gonna, we were gonna shut it down. And uh, we ended up sort of uh, transitioning it back into a larger congregation that was sort of like our covering, our sending congregation. It's a long story. Um, yeah, we learned a ton. And uh, it felt like a failure. I remember really wrestling with just, do, do I call it a failure? Um, I, I don't think I'm a failure. I think Jesus still loves me. But was that an experiment that didn't, did not work out the way I did hope, hope for? Yeah, it failed. Just after that happened... Um, a friend of mine who I was in seminary with invited me to come and be the keynote speaker at a, uh, a Christian sort of performing arts conference that he was organizing in Canterbury. And uh, I, I was, actually it was just after I got that invitation that we decided like, okay, we're gonna shut this thing down. And I was supposed to be like the pastors. They had a bunch of artists and different artistic kinds of people giving talks. And I was like the proper pastor meant to come and deliver this like keynote sermon to inspire all the artists to be creative like God. And, uh, and I think my, my buddy, Chris was his name, was really, imp- he'd been to our, our service a few times and he just loved the vibe and it was very creative and he just thought, you're gonna, you'll be awesome. And so he introduced me at the Performing Arts Conference as the pastor of this amazing church in central London, and it was this and it was that, and I had to come up, and I was very tempted to just like not say anything, except for I had entitled my my talk, The Art of Failure. (laughs) And so I had to confess at the very outset, look, I'm not all that, all right? I'm not all that. And, and if I'm to be really honest with you, at the moment I'm feeling like a bit of a failed pastor. Um, but that's okay, because I reckon if you're not failing, you're perhaps not taking enough risks in life. So, yeah, I'm processing that. And I had to give this talk. 
on the art of failure. And then we moved to Portland with new dreams and and an even stronger sense of calling. And we meet up with uh, an amazing church called Grace City in Corvallis. And I've told that story many times. And Shirley and I were so utterly thrilled to, to find home once again and to be a part of something incredible that God was doing. I remember just before we departed Corvallis, it's like a month or so, there was a guy there uh, speaking at the church named Adrian Crawford. He'll come preach here for us in February. Uh, he, he grabbed me at the end of the service and he said, hey, Simon, I'm really excited for you guys. It looks like you have an amazing team going with you to Portland. Dude, I'm just, God's in it, clearly. But I wanted to ask you a question. And he said, two, two questions. One, what are you most excited about? And I'm like, oh, easy. Like, I just, I'm excited to be a part of what God's doing. Like, I want to reach people for Jesus. I want to share the gospel with people in Portland. And I'm excited for, for people to meet him and, and all of that. And he's like, oh, okay, great. What's your greatest fear? <laughs> and in a moment, I just felt my anxiety spike. Just like, I mean, I felt it in my stomach. It was like, whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> That's the sound of somersaults in your stomach. And I said, my greatest fear is that we're going to fail. We're going to fail. I don't think we're going to fail. I'm, I'm convinced we're not failing. But that's a real fear because of past experiences. That's real anxiety. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. Jesus wants us to live a non-anxious life. He wants to set us free from anxiety. Paul, he's not wishing an anxiety-free life on the Corinthians just because that would be like a nice life to live. Paul's really not that kind of pastor. He's very, very blunt. I mean, this, this, this guy is a man on a mission. He's hardcore. What Paul is saying, I want you to be free from anxiety because Paul is convinced that if you live out this truth of the gospel, if you begin to experience truth and grace in a way that is in fact directly connected to the very real heart of God, you will experience new life. Paul is convinced that if the Corinthians actually start doing it, start living out the gospel, they will be free from anxiety. Maybe not all at once, maybe not completely, at least not in this life. But there is a freedom to grow in and to begin experiencing a freedom from anxiety as we learn how to follow Jesus and live out this this story that we call the gospel. So let's talk about that. How does Jesus and the kind of freedom he offers us actually set us free from anxiety? The gospel rewrites our stories. 
The gospel rewrites our stories to align with God's story. The gospel invites us to reimagine the implications of our past with a new and grander narrative. God's story. God's story. Which is the true story of hope and eternal redemption for all of us, for all of creation. And so the gospel gives us a new perspective. This is why Paul is calling the Corinthians, consider eternity. Think about seeing yourselves and living your lives in a way that whatever you're thinking about, working on, experiencing, trying to sort out, this is temporal. Important, real, yes, but in the the grand scheme of God's eternal narrative, this is totally transient, temporal, in path. And so the gospel gives us a new perspective. I wanna give you four, four aspects of this perspective. Number one, the gospel empowers us to see beyond our darkest fears. It faces, it forces us to face our mortality and our deepest, darkest fears, regrets, trauma, and to see beyond them. It gives us strength to look beyond our fears with hope and vitality, with strength, with excitement, with anticipation, not of fear, but of something better. I love what Paul writes in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. In the very last letter that we have written by Paul, he wrote two letters to a young man named Timothy who happens to be a Greek kid, converted to Christianity. In his second letter to Corinthians, this is his very last letter that Paul wrote. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. In other words, look, I'm, this is it for me. This is the end. I'm going to die. And the time of my departure has come. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Paul, in a very, very real, not not metaphorical, not spiritual, in a very real sense, is about to die. He's he's locked up someplace in Rome, and he's going to die. We don't know if if it's just he's going to be crucified Christian tradition says that he was, but he's dying and he knows it. And yet he has this not, not this sense of denial, but this sense of hope, this sense of I'm ready to cross over. I am excited to receive the crown of righteousness. I have run the race. I have fought the good fight. I am ready to go home, which doesn't glorify death. It just puts death in its place. Death is and will always remain God's defeated foe. 
But as a follower of Jesus, I'm able to look at my mortality and see beyond. I'm able to look at my past trauma. I'm able to to deal honestly with my failure and say, yeah, but there's something beyond that. There's a reality, a, a potential that outweighs whatever fear my mind has dreamt up. And so the gospel empowers us to look beyond our fears. Number two, the gospel calls us to see beyond ourselves. This is, this is really, really helpful. <laughs> now, I don't necessarily, uh, I don't suffer from chronic depression or even chronic anxiety for that matter, but, um, but I am familiar with it. I know that when, when you're in a state of extreme anxiety, your basically mind is turning in on itself. You're, you're caught in a tailspin, and it's, it's virtually impossible to break out of it. You can't just decide, oh, I'm just going to stop feeling this way. Um, and there really is no release. When you're experiencing fear, fight, flight, or freeze, it's because of a very real, actual, imminent danger. When you're caught in a tailspin of anxiety, there is no release because there is no real danger. It's an anticipated danger. It's a fear of danger. It's a fear of fear is what it actually is. And because there is no release, you can't fight it. You can't run away from it. I suppose you could just be paralyzed, but you get stuck and your mind turns in on itself. And there's really no place to go from there. You know, the the popular remedy, the popular form of spirituality that I see being fed to us over and over and over again. If you're looking for freedom, look inside yourself. If you're looking to discover who you really are, your true potential, just look inside yourself. What do you see when you look inside yourself? I'll tell you what I see. I look inside, I see something beautiful and broken. So I look deeper and I see something really beautiful and broken. And so I peer even deeper and I find something beautiful that God made and called good that's broken. And I don't care how, you, you, can, you can disagree with me, you're, you're welcome to prove me wrong. I am convinced that the answer to my anxiety isn't merely looking deeper inside because the further I look, it seems like the darker things get. The gospel says, look beyond yourself. Look up. Look up. Look inside. See what's there. Come to terms with it and say, I need help. I need a savior. I need someone who's outside of myself who can reach down into the darkness, who can crawl into the pit with me, not just to live there with me, not to set up a tent and just empathize for the rest of my life. Empathy gets me nothing. It feels nice. But I need a savior. I need someone who can crawl into the darkness with me and pick me up in his arms, who can conquer anxiety, who can overcome my greatest fears, and who can cause me, who can draw my gaze beyond myself. 
onto the beautiful one. Jesus is the beautiful one. Number three, the gospel enables us to see Jesus. Paul says that we're to live an undivided and orderly life. And I think one of the major causes of uh, just sort of everyday kind of anxiety is the very, very fragmented world that we're all attempting to live in. Now, I wouldn't say that we're all like, we are like fragmented people. That would be, that would be like psychotic. I mean, maybe some of you uh, are dealing with that. It's a real thing. But we're just scattered. You know, and I, look, I, I love social media. I'm not down on Facebook, although I did delete all of my social media apps from my phone because I just couldn't stop checking them. I just couldn't, just like every five minutes, I'm like, oh, let me just check, let me just check. And I was so divided, so divided. You know, the, Paul, the, the word talks about having an anchor for our souls. So the hope that Jesus gives us is like an anchor for our souls. The gospel reveals the immovable source of life. That source that we're meant to weigh our anchor in. So that as we go on with everything else that's going on around us and, do, and trying to you know, impress the world as we do, our anchor is weighed in an immovable source. Um, I love <laughs> Luke 10, I believe. Jesus goes to visit Mary and Martha. Remember the story of Mary and Martha? All you Bible scholars out there. Mary was the, the one who sat at the feet of Jesus. Martha, her sister, was the one who was just running around, kind of doing stuff, doing stuff, feeling slightly annoyed and stressed out because of her sister who was just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so she complains to Rabbi Jesus and says, aren't you gonna say something to my sister? And he says, Martha, Martha, you're freaking out. You are stressed out. You're anxious, is what he says about many things, but your sister, she's concerned with only one thing, and that one thing I will not take away from her. You know it's possible to be in church, to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, and just be running circles around our Savior in a way that we just stress ourselves out? I remember I was, this again, back in London, I'm sorry, maybe in another 10 years, I'll stop telling London stories, but it's still very much just a huge part of our life. Um, we, Shirley and I, we attended this, uh, this counseling seminar. It was, uh, we were at the clinic, and this one particular thing was something that, that Shirley had been doing, and then I, I was coming along to support, it was sort of like a couple's thing. And uh, I remember at the very end, the, the, the director of the clinic, this uh, psychologist, started going around asking people's names, and oh, like, what do you do? It was really kind of random to do at the end. I don't know if you remember this. When it came to me, I said, yeah, my name's Simon. I work at a church um, in Hammersmith, sort of West London. And she said, oh, church. That's a great place to hide. Anyways, what's your name? And then she just moved on. I'm like, like what is that supposed to mean? <laughs> Feeling slightly offended. But I've been thinking about it now for like 10 years. 
And my conclusion is she, she was totally right. I know exactly what she was talking about. Church can be a great place to hide from Jesus and your anxiety for that matter. We can get incredibly busy, strung out on the business of religion and spirituality and forget that Jesus is calling us to simply sit at his feet and rest and rest. Finally, the gospel proclaims that we are not nor ever will be rejected or ultimately alone. The writer of Hebrews says, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And Jesus himself says in John 14, 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. It's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. I believe that the beginning of the solution to living a non-anxious life is orienting ourselves around the non-anxious one, Jesus. You ever, you ever be in a room where there's just like that person with that presence that just exudes non-anxiousness. It's like sometimes when I come home and Shirley's just exhausted from the day and she's like, you know, just, she's just done. And the kids have successfully taken over. <laughs> because she is mortal. And then Papa comes in and it's just like the atmosphere kind of changes. And it's not me per se, but it's just, it's Papa. Papa's home. And that presence just seems to calm everyone. Sometimes I have to, I have to say something in my, my deeper, louder Papa voice. That seems to help. Jesus wants us to learn how to live in his presence at all times and wants us to remember that he is present with us at all times. We will never end up alone or ultimately rejected. Jesus died for our sins. We are forgiven. In Jesus, I am new. I'm adopted. I'm accepted. I'm loved. And there's nothing in heaven or on earth that can separate me from God's love in Jesus Christ. I think for some of us, it's time that we stop running around like Martha. I believe in psychology. I just sent one of you a paper yesterday. Um, did you get that? Yeah. 
I wrote a paper some time ago in London arguing for the intersection of secular and, and sacred or Christian counseling techniques. I'm all for counseling. And if you can't find a good Christian counselor, well, find someone. Find someone who's not gonna mess you up even more. The big win would be find someone who's like a professional counselor and who loves Jesus. That would be awesome. And if you gotta get on meds, if your doctor has subscribed them to you, so be it. I think there's a place for all of that. But guys, what's most important in light of eternity is that we begin to learn how to live in the presence of our Savior, Jesus. Can we stand together? Can I invite the band to come up, please?